This is Toka U.S. Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Akio Maifeld Karuchi. Akio is the 2019 American Berkebiner Champion in the 50K, of course. Skate. He has multiple Super Tour podiums. He studied at and skied for Harvard University from 2011 to 2015. So thanks for being here, Akio. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So I wanted to ask you where you grew up and how you started ski racing. Yeah, um, I was born and raised in Bozeman, Montana. So I grew up skiing with the Bridger Ski Foundation under Dragan Danevsky and obviously all the other junior coaches that make that program such a strong program. Um, so I, yeah, feel fortunate to have grown up in a beautiful mountainous place with great skiing and a strong skiing culture and environment. Super. Akio Maifeld Karuchi doesn't seem like a, an average name for someone who grew up in Bozeman, Montana. Did you want to talk about that? Because I think you have an interesting history there. Sure. Yeah. My first and middle name, Akio Lekea, um, come from the Marshall Islands. So they're uh, a group of atoll chains and coral pinnacles in what most people would identify as pretty much the middle of the Pacific. They're north of the equator, about 2,000 miles west and just a little bit south of Hawaii. Um, and yeah, my father is an anthropologist and he does research in the Marshall Islands looking at social cultural change following the nuclear testing that the United States did in the mainly in the, in the 50s. Um, they did quite a bit of testing in the Marshall Islands. So we grew up going there um, most summers and um, yeah, that's where my name comes from. And I think we might talk later about some of my coming from Harvard and being an engineer, some of my focus on the engineering side also comes from there. Sure, super. Skiing in Bozeman for the BSF, when did you think that, talk to me about the, the decision you made in going to Harvard as compared to a more traditional ski school and you know how you were weighing skiing versus academics and what your thought process was. Yeah. Um, so my father, as I mentioned, is a professor. Um, so, and my mother also works in education. So I you know, grew up in a family that definitely supports and values academics and education. Um, so I, I have an older sister, two years older. And so I went on a lot of her college tours, college visits. Um, so I'd seen a lot of schools and I visited quite a few. I've visited pretty much all the Eastern ski schools and some in the West. And um, so I knew I wanted to ski in college, but I also was interested in engineering and interested in having a strong academics and a strong um, or, or supportive environment in the ski team and finding a place where I felt other people also wanted to pursue both academics and um, athletics. And so while I did find that in multiple schools, I was quite drawn to Harvard. Um, yeah, in the end, I think I was deciding between Harvard, Dartmouth, and Montana State. Um, three very good options, some differences between them. Um, obviously, Montana State being a state school, slightly larger. Um, but I yeah, chose to go to Harvard in large part because of the atmosphere of the team and the coach 
were very supportive and open and pretty flexible. So it was cool that there were some people that didn't have, didn't maybe consider skiing and to be their, their first priority. Um, they love to ski and love to race, but also have a lot of other interests and that can include their academic interests. So I found that attractive that there was the opportunity to ski and train at a high level, but there's also people that really care about the other things going on in the world and their, their studies and they have other interests outside of that as well. While you were at Harvard, your results improved tremendously. You got a lot faster while you were at Harvard. Is that fair to say? I think it's fair to say my results got better. Um, yeah. Um, that's, that's an interesting thing to be able to say because most people wouldn't think that you would have gotten much faster while you were at Harvard. So let's revisit that. But I wanted to start off by saying the Eastern Carnival circuit is famous not only for its competitiveness and the variety of schools that take place, but also for the atmosphere. It's a really fun celebration of skiing and it's very social. Being an athlete from Harvard and traveling with the Harvard team to those events, do you think you had a similar, or how was your experience different, do you think, than someone from one of the more traditional schools, or was it pretty parallel? I think in some ways it was quite parallel um, in many ways, and I think that's what is one of the yeah, best parts about skiing in the East is you see the same people every weekend for six weeks in a row, sometimes one break week in there, but basically you're seeing the same people every, every weekend. There's a great atmosphere. People are really supportive of each other. Everyone's obviously wanting to race as well as they can, but also everyone's in a challenging situation where every single week you're leaving on Thursday or yeah, usually Thursday of the week racing Friday, Saturday. So most people having to miss class, having to catch up on homework, having to really be on top of things during this like really busy chunk, this six week chunk of the winter. So people are in the same boat. Everyone wants to race really fast, but also everyone's stressed and busy. And um, so it makes for a pretty fun environment where that's really a highlight for the week every week when you get to go off campus, you kind of, you make it through the week, you go off campus, get to go and race and focus on something else. And then, you know, maybe you have to do some homework in the van on the way back, or as soon as you get back, you have to get back to the grindstone. But uh, I think that's what's super fun is that environment and that camaraderie that there is on the East coast um, in the Eastern carnival circuit. Um, and I don't think the environment was much different being with Harvard than other schools. Um, I don't know hundred percent, but from my experience, it seemed good. And I mean, all the schools respect each other and their fast gears from, all of the schools and year to year, it kind of changes which team, you know, is racing the fastest or which individuals, which I think is great and super fun to see. Um, people oftentimes are pretty supportive if there's a skier from a school that, yeah, it's traditionally maybe not the top school, but is skiing really well. And yeah. People tend to be really supportive of that, which is great. For sure. Did you do most of your training during the, the, the school week at Weston Ski Track or where did you go? Yeah, so in the winter, we train at Weston Ski Track. If there's natural snow, there are a couple other places we can ski, and it makes the skiing at Weston better. They're, they can have up to 10K if there's natural snow, which otherwise it's man-made of about, depending on what time of year, up to 3K, um, which in some ways is not ideal. There aren't any giant hills there, um, so it's kind of, kind of flat, twisty terrain, 
um, as they make these little loops out of as many loops as they can out of their strip of snow. But it's really reliable. We have snow pretty much all winter from, you know, mid to late December until through March. So through the whole season, which is great. And it's pretty close to campus. So it works out really quite well that we have that as a resource. Um, we spend a fair bit of time, you know, traveling to going to races. And so we usually only ski, you know, at the most you might ski at Weston Sunday through Wednesday. So four times a week. Um, so it's really not that bad. Um, sometimes it gets a little repetitive on the little loop, but you know, things like here now in beautiful Crassberry, we have the roller loop, which is the same length and quite similar. Right. And <laughs> I think I've done more loops on the roller loop now than I probably did at Weston. So it's, yeah, it kind of comes, comes with the, the territory that's a little repetitive, but. With natural snow, where are some of the other locations that you would ski dur at during the week? Yeah, uh, we wouldn't go there as often during the week because of the drive, but um, Great Glen is a little bit further away. It's maybe a 45-minute drive, but we'd go there sometimes on the weekends, and it's more like an hour, but one of my favorite places to ski in the east actually is Windblown Nordic, which is just over the border in New Hampshire, but it's super fun and a really cool old-school New England trail system with some really big hills and fun downhills and cool terrain. So that was, I think that's one of my favorite places to ski in the East, anywhere in the East. But um, yeah, it was always a pleasure when we got to go there for on the weekends. My brother lives over there and that's, I think his favorite place to ski. Yeah, it's great. It's awesome. Cool. Okay. Your coach at Harvard was Chris City and he has coached there for 12 years now. It seems to me he's done a heck of a job building the program there. Can you talk about what it's like to be coached by Chris as a Harvard University student, kind of the experience? Yeah, I, I had a really great experience. He went to Harvard and skied for Harvard in the 90s, um, which I think kind of helps him understand the pressures of skiing and school and how to balance these things. Um, and I think that just helps make him a good college coach, but obviously he understands the Harvard system as well. Um, I think he has done quite well in building the program. I think part of that is just consistency. Um, and that's one of those things that I think can, can get lost in a year to year is, you know, it's not always about a great coach coming in and be like, Oh, we're going to do this. And all of a sudden you have one amazing year. It's well, most of the best coaches just because they're consistent, they do it right every time year after year and slowly you just build that momentum and create that system that's supportive environment um, I think Chris is really good at being understanding and flexible with individuals so if you you know we're up all night doing homework and you come and say like I really don't think I'm going to get much out of intervals today he's like yeah that's fine I understand that sometimes that's what happens now he'll also tell you you know Maybe it's good if you are on top of your work a little more so you don't have to be up all night, but sometimes that's going to happen and we're going to make the best of it. Um, so he's flexible in that immediate sense, but also in a training sense of, oh, these are my goals. Like I want to make world juniors or um, I want to go to U NCAAs and this is maybe like my track on how I want to get there. And he's really good at working with you as an individual on that um, and then incorporating that into the team I think it also does well at having various workouts that can play to different people's strengths. So maybe you have someone that's 
you know, a good sprinter or um, a really good double polar and you have someone else that overall that person might be a lot better on the carnival like ranking, you know, their results are a lot better, but they maybe aren't as good at this one specific thing. So even so there you can match those two people up and they can have a really productive workout together, even though from the outset, you're like, Oh, well this, you know, person that's in the top 20 was training with someone that was in the top 50, like seems like the person in the top 20 wasn't getting as good of a workout in, but based on how you play with the workout, you can really push both individuals um, for certain workouts. So um, there were times where, yeah, I had some great training sessions with fellow teammates that, you know, maybe we wouldn't always finish right next to each other on the results list, but in the, in the training, we were both pushing each other and making each other better. Yeah. That, that's some of the reason why he's had such success and why I enjoyed working under him. Super. As I mentioned before, you clearly, at least in my mind, looking at your results, you, you improved quite a bit while you were at Harvard. You, your results included a second place finish and three fourth place finishes in college carnival races which is, that's high level skiing. There's a Canadian named Remy Drolet who skis for Harvard, skied last winter at Harvard. He won the Bates Carnival. He also finished seventh at World Juniors. He's clearly a world talent in skiing. I think that you and Remy are great examples of the truth that there are many different ways of getting to the same place. I think there's a lot of pressure on young skiers to put all their eggs in the skiing basket, perhaps at the expense of being well-rounded or of their education, because they need to kind of go for it and go to a quote unquote traditional ski school, thinking that they're going to get the most out of it. Where I think the reality is if you're, if the school you choose and the path you choose aligns with achieving balance in your life and um, multiple achieving multiple or addressing multiple interests that you can achieve things that you might not be able to achieve otherwise or being more let's say one-dimensional and uh, to me this is a this is a great success story you're looking at the American Berkebinder champion from 2019 Akio and then also Remy like I said he's one of the world talents I think in cross-country skiing right now he was I think 17 and finished seventh in the World Juniors and won a college carnival as a freshman. That's outstanding. So I think this is really important for people to realize that perhaps even more important to, than going to a ski school is addressing your personal needs and aspirations. What do you think about yeah. that? I think that was excellently said. And that is definitely how I approach skiing and try to approach most things in my life that I think it's the balance um, is really important. And I think it is beneficial. I think, like you said, I am a better skier because of my other interests. I think it's really good mentally to not only be focused on skiing, it's good to have other outlets, but also that those make you a better, more well-rounded person that has, you know, better perspective to understand, you know, how you're going to accept success and defeat and how you're going to go through training and go through the good times and the times when it doesn't feel so good. And all those things, I think it's really important to have that balance. And that's, yeah, for me, yeah, super central to my approach to skiing in life. So I definitely enjoyed my time at Harvard because of that. Having, like, it's not a huge team. So I think my class, there was only me and one other skier in that graduated my year. So my, none of my roommates were skiers. 
I was always rooming with other people from most of which were different majors, different interests. Most of them were not athletes. So I really enjoyed those parts of my experience. And I think those things are super important. I think you can, you really can make the experience what you want it to be. If you want a really good academic experience, I think you can get that from pretty much any school if that's your focus. And equally, if you want to really excel at skiing or another sport, I think if that's your focus coming in of, okay, I want to get a good education, but I also really want to excel at the sport. I think it's, you, it's possible in pretty much any school to find the resources to make that possible, you know, especially in a sport like skiing or running where there's, you know, some individual, there's a lot of individual input say, okay, well, this is what I need to get, do to get to the next level. I need to be training this much. I need to be recovering this much. I need to be focusing on strength and, you know, these certain, you know, workouts. I need to have, be able to do a certain amount of L3 or a certain amount of intensity. Um, those are all things that you can make happen. And while it can be great to have other teammates that are doing the same thing, it's not necessary. And if that's your focus, you can make that happen. And I think, both, I mean, I don't know Remy's personal training, but I talked to him a little bit when he was considering going to Harvard. And that's definitely how I approach it is if I want to be a high level skier, I can make this happen at Harvard. I have a sportive coach and a sportive team. And even if some of the workouts are going to be on my own, if I'm wanting to train higher volume than some of the other people, all right, I'll do more, you know, runs on my own in the morning. Or sometimes I would we'd like drive somewhere for practice and then I would like run home from that to get more volume in or something, but you can make it happen if that's your focus and having balance and uh, other interests, I think are a really important part of that. Akio, something you probably didn't know is I grew up in Massachusetts. Nice. So I, I, grew up, I was a skier ever since I could walk and we would do workouts even during the winter, but for sure early winter, but even during the midwinter, we'd do workouts on Concord Country Club golf course, and the greensman, the greenskeeper, would constantly kick us off because we were messing up the, <laughs> the greens and the, the golf course. And then we would do workouts on the base of Neshoba Valley, because they would shoot snow before they opened. We would go there oh, every yeah. morning, and then someone would show up and kick us off. But we do that <laughs> quite constantly. And then Greatbrook Farm opened. Stuart Johnstone, the, the yeah. farm opened yeah, there. when I was in high school. And we had a one third of a kilometer loop for most of my time in high school or a one kilometer loop, depending on which year. Okay. And that was before Western ski track. And I skied there for tons and tons. And we had most of our races <clears throat> on a very short loop as well. Cause we had some bad wow. snow years then. Yeah. And my point is I wasn't super fast at that point, but I did make junior nationals and, and all that. And two years later, I was the top junior in the country and on the U S ski team. I mean, right. there, there are multiple ways of getting to the same point. You don't have to, move north and go to a ski school, like a high school, either like Stratton or Green Mountain Valley School or, or something like that. You can, as long as you're interested and passionate, you can creatively get things done, like what you've done and what Remy's doing and what countless other people are doing. And it doesn't necessarily hold you back. So that, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. And I'm proud of your example that you've, that you provided. Yeah, I agree. I think it's very true. And in some ways, I, I do think it enhances your experience that you had to make it work and you learn things through that. Yeah. And look at you now, you now ski for the green team. Uh, so it's a green racing project, which is located in Craftsbury. Um, you've got pretty much optimal setup 
roller ski loop, which is brand new, but tons of terrain and trails and in the winter, amazing. And the facilities in general are fantastic. And I do believe that because of where you came from, not necessarily Bozeman, but fighting through your early years as, a, as an elite skier, I think you're probably even more likely to take full advantage in a, and appreciate all of the opportunities that you have with this incredible setup. Is that something you would agree with? Yeah, I think that's pretty true. Um, we are, we have a great setup here. I think part of it also the team have great training partners and a great coach, great training support um, from Peppa. And then also we'll get video support from the junior coaches help us. Um, Jake Barton oftentimes helps us with video and coaching. And um, Mike is um, the currently the head biathlon coach. And he also helps us in the gym quite a bit, he and Jake. And so to have all of that support network is wonderful um, and something I'm very appreciative for. Like you said, I also have had sometimes both, you know, in high school and college and also elite skiing where I didn't have as much direction from the coaching side. And I think you can also really progress in that environment, but it's, I would say, easier and it is quite nice to have the support that we have here. Um, and I definitely try and take advantage of that, but I also try to keep that perspective of, okay, well, you know, you show up and we got a bunch of snow and so it's not groomed very well and it's going to be kind of a messy workout. It's like, oh, well, this is still a great opportunity. We're still going to like learn how to ski better in this kind of crud that maybe is, you know, not the most fun to ski in, but you can still get a great workout out of it and have that flexibility and that perspective, I think. Um, definitely helped with some of my previous experiences. For sure. Um, just speaking of that, before we get back to green team, <clears throat> uh, that those that bad grooming creates opportunity. I think. For example, last winter there was a workout that Pearl, my daughter, did who I was coaching at Soldier Hollow. It was in late February, and we had gotten about four inches of new snow, and it was fairly warm mm -hmm. underneath that, so it was really soft. And there were a few teams there trying to do interval workouts and Pearl was doing intervals as well. And everyone was complaining about it. And instead we took the opportunity to show her how to ski in snow where you don't have a solid platform to ski on. It's a different yeah. technique. You use a so, straighter leg and you use much more upper body. And you use, in other words, you don't gobble up oxygen trying to use your legs. You keep them very stiff and use a lot more upper body as a skate workout. And mm -hmm. we knew that junior nationals were in Truckee in the spring almost inevitably every single workout you have or every single race you have there is super soft. And so when she got there, she knew how to ski hard and efficiently and that snow and she ended up winning junior nationals in the U twenties. And nice. I think it had a lot yeah. to do with that workout. So there's, you know, there's a lot of opportunity that can be gained from when you look for opportunities, like, like you just. Totally. And I think, I mean, it becomes also really important as you start stepping into the international stage, while the world cup venues are amazing you also oftentimes like in the classic races, they only set one track and the men go second. So the depth of the pole track on either side is super deep. And oftentimes the hills are really blown out. And so it's like, Oh, well I can totally ski when I have a perfect conditions at home, but then you go to this and this is, you know, you're trying to make a good first impression on an early world cup. And <laughs> it's just this mess that you have to learn how to ski through. And you are watching, you know, these top skiers, and you're like, wow, they make it look so smooth and so efficient. And then you see the conditions they're moving through. And it really 
highlights how important those skills are and being able to ski in anything. Um, so yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's great. Absolutely. Okay. So getting back to the green racing project, the, the program or the team, the cross country team is coached by Peppa Milocheva. The program has been very successful with athletes such as Ida Sargent, Caitlin Patterson, Caitlin Miller, Liz Guinea, Ben Lusgarden, and Adam Martin, all representing the U.S. in World Cups very recently. So it's hugely successful. Can you describe how it is to be a member of the green team? And is any of the training different from the norm? Yeah, I touched this a tiny bit, but I think the atmosphere, both from the coaching side and from the athlete side, is really great here. In general, people are very supportive, which is helpful, but also there is a lot of international experience. Um, it can be quite helpful to talk to those individuals. You know, out on distance ski, you're just chatting. It's like, oh, what is it like to show up in Finland where it's dark and cold and you're going to be there for three weeks before you get a race or two and a half weeks getting ready for your first race? And you were surrounded by hundreds of Scandinavians and Russians that are all doing their basically national trials and are peaking in late November. Like, what is that? What is that like? Um, how do you manage those things? How do you achieve your goals, whether that is to kind of ski into the season or whether you're trying to rip one really good race? How do you approach those things um, based on what World Cup starts you might have? And how do you, how do you balance those World Cup starts? Um, you know, one thing, yeah, it can be challenging. Sometimes they have to turn down a start. This, this doesn't make sense for me as an individual. Like I it doesn't make sense for me to do this sprint race or I'm going to focus on the sprint race because it's part of a mini tour or like how you kind of approach your different races that you might get or, um, and how you train through those while traveling, all that stuff is stuff that's helpful and interesting to talk to the athletes that have done that about, um, for the training per se, I'd say there's definitely a focus on ski specificity more so than I had, especially out West. I think in some ways the West tends to be a little more chill and there's you know lots of fun mountain adventures and stuff, which I really enjoy. But here I'd say there's a little more ski specificity. Some of the like running with poles, ski imitation workouts we do here are a little bit unique. We have some skipping with poles workouts that I think some athletes have talked about maybe on a Wednesday workout or something. And um, we, yeah, maybe have some things that are slightly different, but overall, I think it's fairly similar. Um, and yeah, I think here I maybe do more two a day workouts than I did before. It's pretty common that we, um, instead of, I would say we don't do a ton of super long sessions. Um, and more likely you have three or three and a half hours in the morning and then another if you're trying to get a big day and another hour and a half in the afternoon or something whereas in the past maybe I would just go on a long adventure that's you know four or five hours and then that's all for the day so I think we do a few more workouts for total number um, because of that but I would say it's pretty similar to other um, teams and I think for that like number of workouts I think that's probably similar to a lot of the elite teams but um, I was trying to think of other really unique workouts we do, and I wasn't thinking of that many, but I feel like there must be some other ones. I think the skipping one is one people like to talk about, which is pretty fun. Um, 
kind of variant on running with poles. So let's, let's talk about probably what makes the Green Racing Project most unique. On the website for Green Racing Project, under sustainability, it says Green Racing Project athletes engage with being environmentally green as they blend the explicitness of their athletic goals with the broader understanding of the ecosystem they work within. I've also noticed, end, end quote, I also noticed that you as a mechanical engineer with a Harvard education have been tasked with, quote, increasing the efficiency of the heating systems, unquote, in the buildings. Can you please talk, uh, speak about the Green Racing Project mission, including as pertains to the ski team in this project specifically? Yeah, and that is also one of the things that I really enjoy here at Crassbury, and one of the things that drew me here um, is the opportunity to still do things outside of skiing. There is more going on here. There's a lot of work with the community. There's um, work projects that we are doing that are fairly personally motivated, which is one of the things that I like is um, Dick Dreiskacker and Judy Gear, the owners and directors here, they are very supportive of the idea that they want the projects to be something that you want to do and you're interested and focused and excited about. And um, that in some ways is <laughs> it's an interesting environment because it makes it very hands-off. They're not going to say, oh, you need to go and do this or, oh, you need to do this. Just like we have suggested, like we're supposed to work a certain amount per year, but that's about it. That's all I say. So then it's up to you to kind of find what you want to do and um, pursue your daily schedule kind of around training and travel. And so, yeah, one of the things I'm interested in is building efficiency and heating. Um, so especially from the side of renewables and looking at clean and efficient heating systems, um, heating and cooling systems. So here there's a few projects that I've, help some with some of which were already underway but like we have a pretty interesting one that I didn't work on but I think is really interesting that we're doing here is the heat recovery that we generate for, or that comes from the snow generator so the generator that drives the snow making system it um, puts off it uses a lot of energy puts off quite a bit of heat and we recover a lot of that heat and we use that heat to then heat the buildings um, on we yeah the east side of campus, the main lodging areas that people that have been here know, um, the cabins and Cedar and the touring center and the gym. So, we, so yeah. specifically regarding that, when, how does that work? Do you, do you have the snow gun in, a, in an encapsulated area and then that heated air gets, gets captured and transported into a room that's, that, to heat it? Close, yeah. So, um, not to get too technical, but so the reason that we have a generator is we don't have three-phase power here at the center and the, the guns require three-phase power. So we have to have a specific generator that uses diesel that generates three-phase power so we can run the guns and the pump to drive the water. So that's why we have the generator. So it's not the guns that are making the heat. Okay. I think the guns are fairly efficient, but it's actually the generator here. And that's something that we have in our snowmaking system that most people don't have to worry about because if you're in an industrial area or a city, you can just get three-phase power off the, off the line. Um, but so we have this big generator that generates three-phase power. That generator, we have a cooling mechanism that runs water through the 
I think pretty much the exhaust system and some of the, maybe some of the engine system. Um, yeah, the generator is basically just a, like a giant internal combustion diesel engine. Um, and so the cooling system for that, not only does that keep the engine cool, but it heats the water. And then we pull that water off and we put it into the, we have this big tank. And so we have a heat exchanger that warms up this tank of water. This is a 20,000 gallon tank of water. So it's just a big thermal sink. So we heat this big body of water and then we can use that hot water to heat the, the radiant floor and the um, wall radiators and stuff. So all the heating is done through water and then we pump that hot water on campus. Okay, so that makes sense to me. I was trying to figure out how, if you were capturing warm air, how could you avoid capturing exhaust with it? Yeah. Piping that into a building. But the water makes a lot of sense, of course, because it gets heated up yeah. by the, in the cooling process. So that makes perfect sense. And there's kind okay. of a break. There's like two different water systems that then have a heat exchanger. So there's water that just goes through the boiler or then there's the water that's just within um, the heat sink, this big tank. So um, it, yeah, slightly separated, but basically the idea is yeah, heat, heating water and then you can move that around a little more easily and we can also store it. So some of our heating comes from, the, the rest of our heating comes from wood. About a third of our heating for the year comes off the generator. Um, and the great thing about having that, that big energy sink is then if you're, you know, you're not generating every night, you generate for a period and then you stop generating. So during that period, it heats that tank. And even when you stop generating, that tank will stay warm for a day or two. Sometimes they won't have to fire the boilers for a day or two after you've been generating snow, which is cool. And then the tank's temperature starts to come down based on occupancy. We then look at how much heat we think we need basically over the period. And then we can, we have auxiliary wood-fired boilers that we can heat the water with too, um, to bring it back up to temp. There are some listeners who are probably not from New England and possibly not familiar with Craftsbury, especially the new Craftsbury, let's say the last number of years since, sure, since sure. Yeah. Um, Dick and Judy been there. Can you give a kind of a brief overview as to the eco-friendliness and emphasis of the Craftsbury organization? Yeah, so I mean, the mission statement talks about the pursuit of lifelong athletics. So that includes running, rowing, skiing, um, and also, you know, we have things like snowshoeing and mountain biking. So lifelong athletics, the pursuit of those through sustainability. So we're talking about energy efficiency, but also energy efficiency in a sustainable manner for not only our generation, but generations to come. So through sustainability and stewardship for the land. So we have these trails are on, you know, we have this big swath of land and forest and so sustainably managing those forests. And that then goes into our, um, our renewable energy sources for heating is we use the wood that we harvest from the center in a sustainable manner to power the boilers and generate the heat for the winter. And the idea this is a carbon, carbon neutral energy source if you are growing trees at the same rate that you're harvesting them, basically. So you, the, trees are basically built out of carbon. So when you cut down a tree, there's carbon sequestered in that that you are burning when you burn it to get heat out or, um, so that is releasing carbon into the air. But then if you're harvesting at the same rate at which the trees are growing, that is a carbon neutral system. So that's, that's our focus and um, part of yeah, our approach. 
and we aren't fully carbon neutral here, but we are trying, we're getting fairly close. I think we generate about 80% 80 to 85% of our electricity through solar panels that we have on campus. Um, and then we try and for things like the heating, we try and have that be as renewable as possible. We obviously still run a bunch of snow, snow machines in the winter. And like I said, the generator is diesel. So it's not that we have no emissions, but we definitely try to minimize them and be as sustainable as we can. And we're always looking for ways to continue to reduce our footprint. So that talking about some of the projects I've done um, this past fall and winter, I redid the heating system and um, we have some athlete houses that we own that the center owns. So the ski house, I redid the heating system there um, to upgrade to a more efficient heating system. And in that process, we also upgraded to a boiler that runs off of wood pellets. So it's more efficient than oil, uh, more efficient and more green. Um, so that was one of the projects I worked on that spent a lot of time on last year. That was um, a fun project. I yeah, put in a radiant floor heating system and yeah, we kind of had to redo the the pump station, the heating, yeah, how we integrate the new boiler with the hot water demands, the old heating, and then the radiant floor, and it was a fun project. Super. So one of the challenges, the United States in general is farther south than what pretty much anyone thinks. It's, it's, it's strange, you know, we're, uh, I don't know, do you know the latitude of Craftsbury versus, let's say, Rome, Italy? I think it's farther south, which is- I do not know the latitude of Rome. So that's going to make this comparison challenging. I think we're around 45, 40, uh, shoot. I don't, I'm not sure actually. Um, but I think, yeah, I'm excited to see where this point goes because this sounds interesting. I think yeah. we're on something here. <laughs> um, I just want to pick up. Bottom line is what I wanted to introduce is the idea of of a challenge of, of having a Nordic center at Craftsbury is that Craftsbury is actually very far south when it comes to the Nordic world outside of the United States. In other words, if you were to compare a location in Europe that had a similar, it looks like Craftsbury is about the same latitude, maybe slightly north of Rome, Italy. Okay. No one in the right mind would have a Nordic center in Rome, Italy because it doesn't snow. <laughs> and, and the wisdom in having a Nordic center in an area of a similar latitude, obviously the, the climate in Clarksbury is not the same as Rome, but it still, there's a, I believe in terms of how, looking at Europe, Clarksbury would be one of the, probably the most Southern Nordic center mm. in the Alps or in Europe, Central Europe. And it's probably the most Northern, it's on the Canadian border. So you can't go much farther North than that in the United States. The challenge that comes with it then is dependable snow. Craftsbury is in what we call the snow belt in, in New England. You know, it creates, it receives better snow than pretty much anywhere else in New England um, that's not on top of a mountain. But at the same time, man-made snow has become necessary. Craftsbury is very interested in being an eco-friendly site. Can you talk about the man-made snow operation and how it's, how Craftsbury has gone to extreme lengths to make it as efficient and eco-friendly as possible. But it is pretty yeah. unique. Yeah, it is pretty unique. And I mean, to speak to that uniqueness, one of the projects that we've been working on recently is storing snow over the summer. And we are by far the furthest south 
latitude anywhere in the world, I believe, that stores snow at our elevation. So we're not very high, and we're a thousand feet. And as you just said, we're not very, we're not really that far north. So the store, snow storage is um, kind of a research project slash, yeah. Now it's become more than just a research project, but it started as a research project with UVM, and now we're pursuing it as part of our practice and part of the operations here at the center. But and that ties into the broader snowmaking system. I think it's, it's definitely a challenge. It's a challenge when we're hosting big races, hosting nationals or super tour finals in the spring. Those are really challenging events to pull off from a snow perspective, which all organizers know and something that we don't talk about enough, but as skiers, we really appreciate all the work that goes into making those events happen because it's, especially on the snow front, can be very stressful. They have, we have to have a fair bit of backup on the snow front. So we have these big piles in the upper and lower fields usually that just, that oftentimes just sit here because you don't know when you'll have weather to blow snow. So if you can maximize your snow blowing in optimal weather, so lower humidity um, and lower temperatures, you get better snow and you get higher yield for the amount of energy and water you're putting in. So part of the snow storage, obviously the goal is it also extends our season so we can start earlier reliably, but, um, and that's part of our, you know, we guarantee people snow by Thanksgiving. But in addition to that, we're able to make that snow in the middle of winter in optimal conditions. So we have like high output guns that we generate that snow usually if it's like below 10 degrees is the goal. And over the course of a night or 36 hours, they can generate huge piles of snow down there. Um, so we have an, a little hollow in the ground where we generate snow for that, um, for the snow storage. But so things like that, we're really trying to think about how can we maximize the good weather we have to make snow efficiently. But at the same time, if we aren't hosting big races, how much snow storage do we need? So do we need to have enough to be able to push out 2K of man-made? Do we need enough that, you know, so it kind of depends. And so this, I think, will be somewhat of an interesting year. We won't be holding any national level races. So I don't know how that might affect our snow plan of how much we need um, to have in storage and reserve. That if, yeah, so it'll be interesting, but we definitely try and focus on that and take it kind of based on the schedule that we're looking at. How much do we need? When do we need it? Okay, when do we need to generate it based on the weather windows we have or the weather windows we know we'll have? We know we have good snow right now. We know we need it in a month. We should probably generate this much. And that way we can get by. If we get another good wind weather window and we need more, we'll be able to generate a little more, but we have enough we can get by. So those kind of calculus of trying to not do too much just because we can and then have it be inefficient, but generating when it's efficient and generating the amount we need are definitely concerns that we think about and try to balance. I'm, I'm proud of Crassbury, and I think that the Crassbury Center, Outdoor Center, reflects the values of pretty much all Nordic skiers anyway. Um, I, I think it's an important center for people to know about and be proud of. We read in the media sometimes about initiatives that have 
been undertaken in Sweden, for example, when it comes to um, recycling or turning what traditionally would be a, a form of garbage into a form of energy with very little um, uh, waste generated, or when it comes to generating snow or maintaining snow levels in an eco-friendly manner. And yeah, Craftsbury is the farthest north in the United States, pretty much, you know, it's right in the Canadian border, but it's far souther than anywhere uh, in Scandinavia. And so there are challenges when it comes to saving snow, maintaining snow, generating snow, et cetera, that they don't have. And I'm, I'm really impressed with the ingenuity and resourcefulness of the Craftsbury organization and staying true to their mission while at the same time providing snow for training and for recreating, but also for hosting very big and important US events. So um, it's easy for us to look at Sweden and some of these other countries that have been very innovative and be proud of them and say, boy, I wish the United States was more like this because we all feel that. But the reality is we do have something like that and it's called Craftsbury. And so mm -hmm. I'm really proud of Craftsbury. And I think that a lot of the members of the Green Racing Project, a project are also proud to be associated with Craftsbury for that reason and to live according to the values that we all hold near and dear as Nordic skiers and environmentalists. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think it's very accurate. And I think, I mean, a lot of us enjoy being here for that reason, but also a lot of us are also inspired to contribute in what ways we can because of that. And like you said, I've worked on some of the heating efficiency in buildings and stuff, but there are also some smaller projects. Um, one of our athletes, Jake Brown on the biathlon side, he um, I like to joke because it seems kind of silly, but it's actually worked out really well and it's been great. He created the, just this donation bin where people can bring old shoes and they donate them. And then we like clean them up and pair them up and have like a little display area where you just set them out, the nice ones, and then people come and a lot of people find shoes that are great and they can use them again. And then people bring in their old shoes that they don't want or don't use anymore. And the ones that are, and then once you get to the, like the, we collect the ones that aren't really usable anymore and we'll send them to Nike and then they make tracks out of them. And so just little projects like that, it's super easy. And now there's just a bin there and we don't really have to do much to keep this system going, but it's a great resource and increase efficiency through reuse. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think we all want to live in a world like that where everyone goes out of the way, not only to live cleanly, but also to help each other out and share. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. So let me bring up another aspect of this because perhaps living in a very green, eco-friendly, eco-responsible, even community responsible manner is perhaps not enough. Perhaps also that manner of lifestyle needs to be advocated for. And that's also part of the Green Racing Project's mission. So this is for from the website again. Along the way, we will share our knowledge of environmental issues with our communities and encourage others to take action and live green. So my question would be, how is the sharing of knowledge and communication actually done by the Green Racing Project? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's something we try to do well at, but also one of those things that you probably can always do better at. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot of small acts that individuals take, things like, you know, on like this interview or this call, I, you know, really enjoy talking about these issues and things that we spend a fair bit of time uh, working on and thinking about here. But 
Um, here at the center, I think we have pretty good communication on this. Um, we have a handful of signs around that kind of talk about, oh, what's like, what's happening beneath your feet kind of idea of, oh, what, what's generating the power beneath your feet? Or, you know, we have the composting toilets in a couple of the buildings. What is like, why do we have this and what's going on here? We have like some posters that kind of explain those. We have, especially in the summer, we have energy tours. So we kind of, people can meet and then there's a staff member or an athlete that walks them around and talks about some of the energy things on campus. We also have some talking um, presentation series here on campus. So that are open to the community, open to anyone, but they're obviously in person usually, although maybe there's some virtual ones um, this year. But so we have some on forestry and some on, you know, biology looking at maybe bird species or frogs or other like, you know, some of the animals that we live and interact around and with. Um, and so we, we try to have some of those events and we really try and interact with the community, um, making all these things open and available and, you know, provide some snacks and, you know, get people to come and talk to, yeah, a forestry person from um, Fish, Wildlife and Parks or someone else, maybe a professor from Sterling College who we have up on the green and they do a lot of kind of renewable, sustainable agriculture stuff. So maybe there's a presentation on that. And we also try and do a fair bit of that sustainable kind of gardening, um, small scale agriculture work here on campus. So we try and have some talks. We, we have some blog work, although I think we could have more blog work. Um, these days, I think we could have more virtual um, presentations. And I think that's something going forward as a lot of people, you know, when the time comes to transition back into a more normal setting outside of the times of COVID, I think that's one of the things that should continue is, oh, we're having a presentation. Oh, well, we should just put up a Zoom link so anyone can come and watch. So I hope that those things um, do happen more in the future. But um, we, I think we do decently well on campus about spreading knowledge and communication on these issues. And I think we could do a little better online presence, but we have some on, on the blog that both the GRP will blog and the news and um, blog for the center. And then quite a few in-person um, events, which are fun. And I mean, I like going to a lot of those, the forestry talks or some of the biology talks, you can learn a lot and it's, it's really, it's cool. And it's fun to interact with the community in that way. They have a lot to share okay. um, that we can continue to learn okay. more about our world around us. Super, that sounds great. So we haven't talked about skiing much Let's 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 start talking about skiing now. Uh, <laughs> but I did think it was very important to talk about Craftsbury quite a bit because um, it's an exemplary location as well as organization and team, and I thought it really deserved highlighting. Yeah, I enjoyed that. So your most outstanding result, at least from my perspective, is a win in the 2019 American Berkebiner. Can you please uh, talk about? The, how the race unfolded and what it means to you to have won the American Berkeley Miner in 2019. Um, obviously it was a wonderful day for me as an individual, um, a day I really enjoyed and look back to with fondness. Um, I, sometimes we like to make fun of the, some of the Midwestern skiers because of how much they love the Berkey, but 
it's only a joke because I really love the Berkey too. I think it's an awesome event. It's super fun. I just love the community and the feel. There's so much enthusiasm and so much excitement from so many people. And I just think that's an awesome experience that we don't get very often. There's a lot of time of us at a small race in the woods and we're trying to do our best, but we have to bring that excitement and it's really fun to go to a place where there are so many other people that are so excited to be there and so excited for the opportunity to race, whichever race they're doing. And I just, I love that going to the expo, um, seeing a lot of old friends. It's just always a great time. All the, all the people hanging out in cabins, just all over the woods on all the lakes and, you know, making a weekend of it. I think it's, yeah, it's a wonderful space. So I really enjoy that. Um, 2019, I had a great time. I spent the week um, staying with Elena Sonneson and her family, which was really fun. We're good friends. And um, so it was fun to be there in that family environment, staying in a cabin, going to the trails to ski. Everyone's excited about skiing. And I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone raced one of the races that weekend, which was great fun. And I've stayed with other families in past years and it's always a pretty similar experience. The whole family or large parts of the family are racing. Everyone's excited and these great family experiences and um, yeah, really strong friendships are built in those experiences. So I really enjoyed those, those times in 2019. I had a great day. I felt good. Skis were great. The race unfolded smoothly which in a race like the Berkey is really important because there aren't many places for help if something happens out there. Um, so yeah, I had no complaints. It was a beautiful day. Great day to ski. Um, There's a little bit of fresh snow um, in the second half. Once we caught up to the girls, the women, there was, we enjoyed skiing in there. <laughs> They'd been pushing snow the whole time but we'd been enjoying skiing in their tracks until we passed them. And then we got to take the brunt of the, the tracking, but um, yeah, it was good. That was, I think would be one thing of slight note in the second half, something we had to consider was, okay, I, we got in a position where uh, Brian Gregg went off the front going for the second preem right at double O. Um, so I bridged up to him to close down on that gap right after we went through double O I found, um, it was just Brian, Matt, and I. And Matt says, Matt Leaf, he says, it's, he's like, oh, I think we should go. Like, this is a strong group. We have a group of three. We have a little bit of a gap right now. I think if we like work hard, we can make this, like we can make this happen. And I was hesitant. I was like, I don't know. It's pretty early in the race. I really don't, didn't foresee myself going that early, trying to break away from the pack. But at the same time, it's always a gamble. And if you have the opportunity to break away, it's much nicer to get away from a fair bit of the pack before the finish because that finish can be a little chaotic with a huge pack. So um, I trusted their, some of their experience and wisdom and was like, all right, well, I definitely agree. We're in a good pack here. These like two strong skiers and I'm feeling good. And so we went for it and really tried to open up the gap. Um, that first bit after double O those next five, five, 10 K, um, which is a tough section because it's mainly downhill, but um, we're really working hard and we were able to open up a bit. The Berkey, one of the fun challenges is you don't really know where you are though. You're like, you can glance back and be like, 
I don't see anyone. But that could mean you have 20 seconds or it could mean you have a minute and it can be kind of hard to tell. So um, we never really knew, but we're like, well, seems like we have a pretty solid gap and, you know, trying to lead back and forth. But yeah, I think my skis were really good that day and they tend to be a little faster. So I kind of, if I was behind in the draft, then on the downhill, you kind of end up in front. It's like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to lead again. So I ended up leading a bit more than I wanted to, but obviously it worked out. Um, we made it to the lake still with a gap, um, feeling not too bad in, in that stretch. I was in like, okay, we made it to the lake. I really don't want to lead on the lake. There's usually a bit of a headwind. And so I need to recover a little bit. I've been leading a lot. And then we look back partway across the lake and we see the chase pack. We start getting a little nervous. We're like, Ooh, <laughs> we got to keep the pace going here. We are not going to get caught after this long. So that was good. Just, you know, keeps you on your toes. So started pushing the pace again. Um, and so I ended up, yeah, in the lead for the end of that lake and let off the bridge. Um, and then was lucky that my legs held in there and didn't cramp up too much in the finishing stretch. And yeah, I was able to stay ahead through the line, but it was, yeah, fun to. Did you have enough energy that at that point in the sprint that it was more of a sprint as compared to um, a reflection of the, of how you came through the 50 Ks in terms of, you know, wear and tear? Or was it more, more or less a sprint? Um, I would say it was a bit of a sprint. Like I said, we kind of tried to chill on the lake. I think I didn't want to lead on the lake, so I pulled back. And then they were like, oh, well, if you're not going to push the pace, we're not going to push the pace. So I think we'd recovered for a few minutes there. Um, and everyone was kind of preparing for that finish. We had enough of a gap. I think it was kind of in the back of your head like, okay, you know, I've been feeling really good, but I've also been leading a lot these guys like Brian went for the first two preems. So clearly he's feeling pretty good, but also hasn't been leading a ton. Um, so it was kind of like trying to figure out where other people are at, but all of us kind of trying to recover a little bit on the beginning of that lake. So it's definitely an interesting place to be where you're trying to judge your competitors, but also preserve or yeah, maintain a little energy in yourself and coming to the finish my goal was to stay relaxed and not start sprinting too early really because that's a long finishing stretch yeah. and it's uphill and <laughs> I think you can definitely go too soon. So I was really trying to hold back, but it's super exciting on main street with, it's just so loud. There's so many people. Um, and so I remember like trying to hold back a little bit and feel those guys flank out on either side of me. I'd, yeah. Matt on my left and Brian on my right and we're coming down we're like pretty even you can kind of feel where people are at but it is really loud so it's harder to tell than normal and then you know I was kind of trying to hold back a little bit to yeah, not go too early but then you get so excited I was like ah, oh, I'm just gonna go and you just start sprinting and then it's tough when you feel that speed and you're all kind of going the same speed you all accelerate but you're still together and then Matt started to fade a little bit and so then it was Brian and I, and I was like trying to judge where he was at, but it was, like I said, it's really loud. And I don't really want to look over explicitly, but I couldn't see him. Like, I think I'm ahead of him. And <laughs> so, yeah, sprinting it out for sure. I was at no point was I like, confident about what was going to happen. Even when I crossed the line, I was like, uh, 
I think I got it, but I don't really know. <laughs> and I remember asking one of the volunteers, like, wait, did, did I get it? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> you want to see a video? <laughs> so I remember finishing and then being tired and this volunteer being very excited to show me a video. And I also remember looking at that video and being like, man, that's really quite close. <laughs> I'm like glad I didn't let up at all at the end. Like I was really just focused on skiing through the line, focus on like doing everything you can right here. And it was quite tight. And I, yeah, had no point where I was super confident about what was going to happen. So cool. it's definitely exciting and a bit of a sprint. Yeah, that's a nice run down. Not a fast sprint, but still a sprint. So once again, the, the sprint itself was, was an actual sprint. It wasn't kind of a, an attrition kind of thing. Who's got the, the most left after 50K? You, you had some pretty good energy and, and you, it felt like it was going to be a real sprint. Is that accurate? I think so, yeah. Okay. I mean, I had a description afterward of someone that watched it, an old racer that said, yeah, I mean, it looked like people were trying to sprint, but it skied 50K. <laughs> joking that we weren't actually moving that fast but yeah. to me it felt like a sprint and like I said because I didn't have a feeling of confidence of oh well I've been strong all day like I'll be fine here um and I wasn't able to just dust them and just ski away from them so yeah I definitely thought of it as a sprint and it was competitive right to the line um and it was it was quite close so, so, I'm, so I'm curious tactically speaking you've had a couple of pretty good sprint races um, did you feel going into the sprint, if you were fairly, had some pretty good energy and Matt and Brian had some pretty good energy, did you feel like you could probably, that you were probably the favorite or, and, and in terms of, did you think it would have been in Brian and Matt's interest to try to leave you on the lake? You know, were you kind of like, Hey, if it comes to the sprint, I'm going to, I think I'm going to take this. So I just need to conserve energy and stay with him at this point. Or were you thinking, Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. A little bit of both, I'd say. I was hopeful that I would do well in a sprint. I, we'd had races at Minneapolis-Fort Worth the week before, and I'd felt really good in the sprint there. It was a skate sprint. and I, um, So I was feeling pretty good about where my speed was at. But I also, it, it's not the same. <laughs> at the end of a 50K, it felt like a sprint. But like we said, still, it's very different. And if you go just a little bit too hard too early, and your legs just fully cramp up. It doesn't matter how fast you are if you can't flex your legs anymore. So there's, I mean, that's what I think is super fun about some of these distance races. There's just this uncertainty. You're like, well, I feel fine right now, but we'll see what happens in three minutes. <laughs> I don't know. So I was hopeful that if everything went well and I was feeling good at the end, I would have a strong chance in the sprint. But um, Brian and Matt are also quite quick. Um, Matt, or I think, Brian especially has had some really good sprint qualifiers. So he has the ability to move quickly, efficiently. Um, so at the end of a 50K, I still think it's, it's definitely not certain in any sense. And I hoped I'd fare well. I think they also had that feeling like, well, he'll probably be strong in the finishing sprint, but also I'd led a lot. So how much do you have left in your legs becomes a legitimate question. Um, so I definitely thought it was exciting. I didn't know what was going to happen, <laughs> but I was hoping I would fare well in this sprint. Yeah. So what about the idea of you being an American Birkebiner champion? It's the kind of thing that it's a title you've got for life. And in some circles, it carries a lot more weight than other circles, of course, you know, I'm not sure around Crasbury how, how much reverence there is for that title, but for certain anywhere in the Midwest, uh, there's a ton of respect and admiration to say the least. That goes with that 
Um, have you got a, a solid understanding as to what that means and do you appreciate it or how do you feel about it? Um, I think it's, I think that's an interesting question for sure. Um, in one way, I think in my ski career generally, but also being a professional skier, having a good perspective about results is super important. There are days when you might have a really good race, but are not as fast as other days. And the results maybe don't always reflect how you feel. Um, now, hopefully when you feel really good and have an excellent day, the results correspond and you do really well. But if everyone else feels the same way, you know, the difference between first and third is very little. And obviously this race is a prime example of that. And so just saying, oh, well, I felt really good and I had a great day. That doesn't mean you're going to win. Doesn't, it's not like, oh, you deserve to win. Like, that's not how the sport works. Like you have an opportunity to capitalize on feeling good and skiing well, and maybe you can put together something that is really special, but you never know. And so I think I try and respect that results are a reflection of an individual moment at an individual time. And so on that day, I respect that, you know, I had some strong competitors and I'm excited that I came out on top, but also I really value the opportunity I had to ski with them and against them. I learned things in that race. Um, and I understand that I'm in, you know, in a position where I share this title now with a lot of really great skiers, both in the U S and internationally. And so very, very few American men, actually. Right. Um, a few and those individuals are, you know, people that I looked up to when I was growing up skiing. So it's really fun to, in some lights, be considered in the same ranks, you know, Pat Elliott, Matt Leach, these guys that are, you know, you, and even in college, you know, it was like, Oh, what happened in the Berkey? Where was the top American? You know, that's what you look at. You're excited and you want to see like, what happened? How do we do like, this is our race and we always want to represent and do really well. Um, so it's really fun to be, yeah, to be in that position. So you're a purist, which I appreciate. You're an idealist. I appreciate that. I think it's really important <laughs> for you to be able to, to define your own, um, let's say, results and standard for yourself. In other words, you could have a fantastic day and have a crummy result and feel really good about that fantastic day. And correspondingly, you can go to a race with very little competition and win the race and not feel great about yourself if you don't feel like you ski very well. I mean, that's, an, that's a very important realization. And I think it's empowering to take control of that and say, you know, I can have a great day and a bad result. I've, 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 I've felt the same way. At the mm -hmm. same time, it must be fantastic to be able to say, I am an American Berkebiner champion and you will always be one. And that means something to someone. If you were to walk up to someone in Wisconsin and say, well, I'm actually a pretty fast skier, especially, um, you know, when I feel good about myself and, you know, when I feel like I had a good day, you know, sometimes I'm pretty quick. They'll be like, you know, I'm not sure if this guy's a total poser or if he can ski or what, but if you walk into a room and say, yeah, actually, they're like, hey, you're the Berkey. You're like, yeah. As a matter of fact, I won it in 2019. You know, it was, it's a, it was a beautiful experience. They're like, oh my gosh. You know, there's a, there's a, it's nice to, to roll off. It feels good rolling off the tongue. As, as, as humble as I'm sure you are, it's still a nice thing to be able to say, I did this. You know, it's the kind of thing maybe you think about later in life and you say, wow, I'm, 
I'm really happy about that, you know? Yeah, I think, I think it is interesting. I think it is an co- experience that continues to grow and evolve. Um, I think it's funny when sometimes I'll have like a friend uh, or like an, my uncle who's not really a skier. They told me a story about, oh, you know, I met so-and-so and they're like, oh yeah, I had like, you know, talking to a friend. They're, oh, I know someone that used to ski and they like, oh, I had a friend that did the Berkey and oh yeah, uh, I know the guy that won that a couple years ago. And people are just like, wait, what? <laughs> like like won the whole thing <laughs> so yeah it's um definitely yeah a position that i really appreciate being in um and value for what it is I'm very excited to be among the ranks of the other american men that have been in this position and international men you're so, a star for life in the midwest whether you want to be or not <laughs> <laughs> okay let's talk about the 2020 berkey the field was super competitive and you went up yeah. seventh just a few seconds out. That's, that's an amazing race that you had kind of like what you were talking about. You know, you had an amazing day with a superb result behind some top world Cup competitors. Uh, you're just a few seconds out. Do you have any comments on that race? Cause that was clearly a superb day also. Yeah. In some ways for me, this was a more interesting day than 2019 um, because it was very dynamic Going into it, I was definitely a little bit nervous. It's the Berkey. I was super excited. I overall didn't feel I had the best season last year. I was really struggling to find my form early on. Um, but I finally felt like my speed was coming around a bit, was feeling better. So I was really looking forward to the Berkey. Um, and I was really excited to ski against these guys. Yeah, top World Cup competitors, ones that had done quite well recently in long-distance races. So I was um, – Definitely excited, a little bit anxious, a little nervous, but um, was looking forward to that opportunity. And I felt quite good, which I was very thankful for. Um, it did not go quite as smoothly as the year before. I, I was, I think, more intelligent about the pack dynamics than in 2018, um, the first time I did it where it was also a pretty competitive year and there was a big pack that formed early and stayed together for a long time. And that year I kind of did some leading early on and then got dropped later. Um, I also yeah broke a pole that year towards the end. Um, so I had a little bit of an appreciation for how dynamic these races can be, especially with a really strong field. Um, the drafting dynamic is larger with the super strong field you're moving a little bit faster. So that increases the draft and there are more people usually in that front front group. So I was definitely um, excited for the day early on. I could see the way the dynamics were, fo- were building after the first um, preem at two K or so. And then I could see when two of the top international guys went to the front and I was focused on, okay, this seems like they're getting ready to make a move. We're getting ready into some of this climbing section, moving toward the high point soon. And so I moved out of line and like started to move up to get back on, to get right on them before they made the break. And right as I did that, like I was skiing by someone and they stepped on my pole and snapped my pole at, yeah. So we're like three K three and a half K in. Um, And my analysis of the race was correct. That was right about when the front guys were ready to make a move. And so right as I broke my pole, they made a move and I immediately got dropped. <laughs> so I skied for maybe half a K with 
only one pole, but it was unfortunately a pretty important half a K. And then going up a hill, yeah, maybe half K later, my teammate Braden Becker had um, he had just gone for the preem, the two K preem, and unfortunately gotten second, but had to go pretty hard for it. So he was like trying to recover from that preem. He's a little off the back, and we were like together. <laughs> he catches me. He's like, "Dude, what's up?" Like, ah, oh, this guy just stepped on my pole and snapped it, and he snapped it high. I had only <laughs> like a foot left, and so I just threw it. I was like, oh, this is – I had maybe, yeah, like two feet left. Okay, this is not useful. So um, he was like, well, like, are you feeling good? Like, do you have this? I was like, I was feeling awesome, but <laughs> now I'm not feeling so good. And he was like, here, here, just take my pole. And so he gave me his pole. Wow. So we're like 4K into the race. Um, and – the first place to get pulls, I believe, is at 7K. And I was like, are you sure? Like, we're on the burger. Like, there aren't a lot of pulls out here. He's like, dude, like, you got to go. You got to take this and go. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I <laughs> took his bull. <laughs> I was like, all right. I told him I was feeling good. Like, now I have to prove it. Like, I have got to catch that front pack. <laughs> and so I just killed myself for the next 20K. I worked up and managed to catch um, – most of the people and I was like in the like, final chase pack before the front and um, but closing down on the front was really challenging thankfully Kyle Bratchard had also been dropped a little bit and um so he and I worked together and we managed to reel them in slowly and we caught them basically right right at double o we caught back up to the main pack and yeah I just trashed my legs and killed myself to catch them but we did it and once you get into the draft we made it before double O, before the downhill. And so I was like, all right, like forget about all that. Reset. Like we can make this happen. Like let the legs recover. And so it was, a, it was definitely an exciting and challenging race for me. Um, hanging in that pack, trying to ski well. It can be hard to be at the back of the pack. So you get the yo-yo effect, according effect going over the tops of hills. Um, it stretches out. And then at the bottom of the hills, it compresses. So I, you know, be, it wasn't a big pack, so it's not, super drastic but still a little bit of that you want to be solidly in the pack so uh, my legs are really tired but I'm trying to ski up in the pack and be in a good position and draft a lot and <laughs> let myself recover a bit which happened I managed to ski with the pack survived all the final moves up the hills you know and Mosquito Brook and Bitch Hill and the um, fields uh, Duffy's field right before the lake survived all the moves like okay we're gonna make it made it onto the lake and I was like, okay, I made it this far. Now what? <laughs> We're about to have a eight person pack sprint for this finish. Um, so I tried to put myself in a decent position and came around the corner to go over the bridge and my legs just like tried to take two powerful like pushes around the corner to start making a move and like slingshot up the bridge and my legs just start cramping fully and <laughs> go over the bridge and I'm like all right I, it's just 400 meters like it's not that hard we skied so far <laughs> trying to ski really well and hold it together through the finish and yeah needless to say I didn't have the best sprint but held it together um and it was still a great day it was definitely yeah an exciting day a lot going on um and yeah it just goes to show how how many variables there are in the Berkey and those types of races and so that was an interesting sprint Normally on paper, 
Andres Glerson would have won that. He's won multiple World Cup sprints as well as he's won some distance races, but he's won multiple World Cup sprints. And um, it was interesting that Torchia, in Torchia was, I think, second and Nicholas yeah. Dierog won. And they're obviously distance skiers, very much distance skiers. It was interesting. There must have been a lot of attrition going into the sprint such that the, the distance skiers were better suited to, to finish as compared to the people that were maybe a little more sprint oriented, like Anders. Yeah, I think especially in the first half, there were some times where Deerhog and others, they were really pushing the pace. And I think it cost a lot of people. A lot of people were struggling. And I think that's the only reason I survived in the second half, whereas Deerhog was like, oh, well, we, we haven't broken it open yet. And we're now in this downhill stretch. A couple people just rejoined the pack. Like, we're not going to get away. And so they let the pace up a little bit. But in the first half, I think they were working quite hard. And I think it took a lot out of people's legs um, in that. So I think there definitely was some attrition. Coming to the end, a couple of those final sprint hills were just like people trying to make a break. But again, the pack was strong enough that it just kind of come back together. And you're like, well, in this setting, it's, it's really hard to get away. But everyone's really tired. So you can make the whole pace higher and just make people more tired at the end and hope that you survive in the sprint. So that's about all you can do if you're not going to be able to break away. So I think that's basically what they tried to do is every hill we got towards the end, try and make a move, even if you weren't going to get away, make a move just to tire people's legs out, take the sting out of them a little bit so that when they get to that final corner and try and turn and come over the bridge, they just don't have quite as much punch. And I think it was awesome. Adam and Ian doing really well, being able to survive all that and really ski intelligently and smart and like, just do what you have to do to stay with the pack at any given time. Try not to give too much at any yeah, individual time and wait, be patient, survive, and then just give everything you have at the end. And don't worry about, yeah, we're, we're racing against deer hog. We're like, okay, <laughs> this guy was on the world cup, like what, two months ago and doing really well. Like on paper, he's super strong, but this is a race. Like, this is why we're here. You don't decide the finish before the end of the race. So it's, you got to do what you can and you get to the finish. And if you've done well, you know, surviving, keeping your energy, like it doesn't matter if Glorison's behind you or not, like, you don't know what's going to happen. So just race hard and sprint well. And yeah, cool. That's what I think what, what can make 50 K so exciting. So I have a question for you. You you're definitely results wise in a way, clearly better at skate than you were in classic. However, I'm having it's hard to kind of pigeonhole you as a skier, you know, sprint versus distance versus 10, 15 K, et cetera. Uh, how would you describe yourself as an athlete in terms of strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I do try and focus on being as well-rounded as possible because I think that is a benefit in a 50 K like we've been talking about. Oftentimes it comes down to the finish. And so you have to be able to sprint at the end. So, if I just focus on training for 50 Ks, well, first off, we only get like two in the year. And if you break a pole in one, well, now you have one, you know, it's really hard, something to bank on. I really, really enjoy those races, you know, the 30 Ks, 50 Ks, even yeah, 20. I, I enjoy all those distance races, individual start, mass start. I think it's all really fun, really interesting. Uh, individual start, you know, more of a mental game, especially in a distance, maybe an individual start, like I don't know if it's going to happen this year, but they're talking about the individual start Holman colon 50 K. Like what is it like to race an individual 50 K? I don't know. Obviously in the 
historically that was a common race to do, but we don't do that anymore. That sounds like such an interesting race as an athlete, how you approach that. But anyway, so I definitely tried to maximize my abilities on every race. I enjoy racing all the races. I, some of them are more of a challenge for me than others. You know, I've do tend to struggle in like classic sprinting. Um, especially if it's more of like a double pole course, I seem to struggle a little bit with that, like high double pole power a little bit, but it's something we're working on a lot. Hopefully this year's better. Um, and for distance, I spend a lot of time training both. I don't try to focus on skating. I have tend to do, tended to do a little better, but not always. There have been some recent nationals where I did better in the classic races than the skate. So for me, I also consider that to be a win and a great day to show some progress in that, that I can you know, be quite close or better in a classic race than a skate race. So I definitely try to focus on all of them. And I think that can be both a strength and in some cases the weakness. If I just focused on skate 15Ks, well, maybe it would be better for my career in the sense that if you win, you know, if you win nationals in the skate 15K, you're immediately going to the World Cup pretty much or the Olympics or something, you know, depending on the year, like that can be a focus and a way to go. And I think that might work well, but mentally for me, that is like we kind of talked about being well-rounded and having other pursuits outside of skiing. I think in the same sense for me to say, oh, well, I have an opportunity every day. Like I'm not the best at sprint qualifiers, but as soon as you like make it into the heats and you have these dynamics and tactics and more variables, I think I can still do pretty well. And so finding the ways to maximize every day is something that I really find exciting and try to focus on. Cool. Well, um, as you probably know, I'm the Toko glove designer. I design all the gloves. Um, can you tell me which is your favorite Toko glove model and why? This is a tough one for me. Um, I have a lot that I enjoy using. I really like the Profies, the lightweight race gloves. They, I think they just feel so good on your hands. I love, I have a pair, I have pairs that I just keep for race day. So they're tight and they feel great. And I don't really find that my hands ever get cold in them. That being said, or at least down to like 15 degrees or so, they're totally fine. That said though, my go-to glove is the classics. I just think they're so good. They're super durable. They're great down to, I'll ski, yeah, if it's five degrees, you can still probably get by with classics. And if it's 30 degrees, they're fine. And wind block, there's not really any insulation. And there's the like straight leather palm against the handle. Feels great. So I'm a big fan of the classics. I'll use them in the fall. I'll use them ski touring in the winter. I'll use them racing on a cold day. And I train in them basically every day. So I think I'd probably have to say that's my favorite, but um, I think both of those are, yeah, great gloves, super nice right. to use. Thank you. Yeah. So I have just a few more questions. Um, you have a Harvard degree in mechanical engineering. That's a very coveted thing. What do you see yourself doing in 20 years or 15 years? Yeah, um, I think this is an exciting question because I don't really know. I think it could be a lot of different things, but I, I'm really interested in renewable energy, renewable energy technology, research and development. 
So I expect I'll be in that sphere. That's still a pretty broad sphere. So I'm not sure if I would be working within that sphere if it'd be more on the industry stride or maybe more on the academic side. Um, I could see myself in academia. I like to teach. I, I spent some couple years when I was being in Bend, working as a tutor, um, mainly for high school kids. And so I like teaching. I could see myself there, but also maybe in industry, working on some sort of, yeah, renewable energy, technology development. Um, as a mechanical engineer, I really enjoy that. Taking a problem, breaking it down into what needs to be fixed or like what, um, yeah, or preventing it from being, from being us like why there's a problem there and then designing a solution and building that solution that's i think a super fun process so finding that design build oriented for the renewable sector i think is that's that's my goal job and what i hope to be doing um but yeah we'll see that still still leaves some some openness for sure on what that exact focus will look like super what is something that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 18? Hmm. Tough one. I, hmm. I think, I think emphasizing patience and balance are things that can be challenging, especially 18, when you maybe are a little more idealistic and are quite motivated and really want to make big changes in the world, both individually for yourself and for the world around you. Um, and having the balance and patience to see what change means and what progress looks like and the shape of that over time is i think something that is is a challenge but to respect that process and um learn learn to go with it and not force it at a given time sometimes the solution isn't immediately apparent and then it becomes apparent sometimes at a time when you're not expecting it so kind of respecting that process, um, but doing so without losing the motivation and the focus and the drive to make those changes and that you have when you're 18. Um, so still being idealistic and still, um, yeah, being a dreamer and looking at what can be and chasing those things, I think it's still important. Hmm. Okay. What is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so going back to some of the points that we've talked about on well-roundedness and other pursuits and interests, I really like some of the more artistic scene of music and for, this is maybe not surprising for people that know me very much as I, um, in high school, I, yeah, both, I was in band and choir. And so as I'm like walking around, I just tend to sing a lot to myself. Um, so I really enjoy that. But another aspect of that, that in my mind is similar 
is I also like to dance. So growing up, I did ballet for six years um, from like four to 10. And then after that, um, my sister and I both did ballet. She continued after I stopped for a bit longer. And then she moved into some other types of dance as well, which included social dance. And so my whole family started, um, we'd take social dance lessons together in, um, there's a pretty decent studio in Bozeman um, with a good instructor. And so we learn how to social dance. So I really like to dance, um, including, yeah, for social dance, like swing and some of the Latin j- dances like salsa and cha-cha and tango are, yeah, all really fun and very different, but at the same way, and you're still moving your body in a thoughtful way. And so in some ways there are a lot of parallels to skiing, but also quite different and um, mentally really, yeah, relaxing and a fun, different outlet. I didn't know any of that. I, I, um, I understand you, you've mentioned ballet and dance and so on, but I want to go back to the singing. Yeah. When you're walking around or skiing or something and you're singing, what might you be singing? What kind of music? Is it a rock um, roll or is it some kind of acapella? You know, what are we looking at here? So the challenge for me, which can be good, but also can be somewhat of a curse, is that I get things stuck in my head very easily. <laughs> so I spent, um, my very good friend, Nick Michaud, um, we spent a couple of years racing together. And one of his, I think, favorite activities was to get songs stuck in my head. Oftentimes songs that I did not even know but by at one point he'd like sing one line to it and then just like wait and 10 minutes later i just have this line going through my head of some song that i don't even know and i'll just be singing it i was like he'd be like oh i got you i was like what are you singing? i was like i don't know he's like yep that's because i sang it to you and you don't even know what song is it <laughs> so really it can be anything from like pop music to country to like folk music um do yeah sometimes more traditional choir stuff that i used to sing or yes a lot of that like i yeah um musical stuff like all of that basically if i hear it then it'll probably get stuck in my head and if i haven't heard anything recently then it's just kind of a shuffle of who knows what's going to come to the top um but yeah it's pretty fun we we do a little bit of music around here caitlin is really good on the violin and mandolin and so um we have a and we have a few guitars floating around and raleigh is a great guitarist and so we we have we call our little like house band so we play and sing some stuff and we performed at the craftsbury there we have a fall harvest dinner um each year and so we performed at that a couple times and so i really i just love to sing it doesn't really matter what the genre is um yeah i have fun with it all cool well that's interesting thanks Lastly, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Yeah, I'll try. And I think, I think this is great because I think it's something we've touched on a fair bit throughout this, but it's really important to me, these ideas of balance, having, you know, having skiing also being about um, the other pursuits in life and having these like well-rounded um, approach. So, as a mantra, I think um, something I really like that to me comes from um, my coach, Bernie Nelson, who I worked with for three years, my first three years skiing um, professionally. And 
so I think of the idea of ebb and flow. And for me, this has come to mean, I think, more than it initially sounds, but the idea of ebb and flow that, so I think of it as things are not linear, so it doesn't always just progress from one thing to the next in a linear fashion. You can have, like, it can feel like things are really not moving along, and then you can have a quick coalescence of many different things. Um, and so this idea of nonlinearity, that ebb and flow, like sometimes it's challenging, and then sometimes it all comes together in a way that um, is hard to predict. And so respecting that process. Also the idea that the, of the balance required with ebb and flow. And I, when I think of ebb and flow, I oftentimes think of like the ocean and the waves, which growing up I spent a fair bit of time just playing around in the waves in the summer in the Marshalls and um, in Bend, Oregon, skiing for the Bend Endurance Academy, we'd have a summer training trip in California, which we used to call, well, Cali camp or surf camp. We'd go to workouts and then you go surf. So again, that idea of like being in the waves where, and especially surfing where you like have to get past the breakwater. So there's points where you're like having waves crash over you and then you can get to points where it's calm. You can kind of see out, see what's coming and then take an opportunity to like turn around and go back through that more violent part of the waves to ride that back in. So that kind of idea of ebb and flow, finding that balance. Um, yeah, non-linearity and also that combination of both ebb and flow, like they come together. So it's not one or the other, but it's both. And so I really like to find that in a lot of things that both, it's like if you're presented with two options, well, it shouldn't just be A or B. There's always, what is the combination between A and B and how much of which and where does it overlap? So those are kind of ideas that I like to think about a lot. And for me, the, the idea of ebb and flow um, kind of brings that together. Hmm. I liked it. I think it's applicable to life, but it's de definitely also applicable to ski racing where you can control. I mean, okay, you can't control necessarily the ebb and flow of an ocean, but you can con you're controlling so many factors. At some point, it might be difficult to imagine a peak because you've been sick or you're tired or you're overtrained or you're, you know, whatever. But when you change your nutrition before you peak and start eating maybe a little more carbohydrates or you focus a little bit more on maybe gathering your energy before a big event, um, you become a little bit more single-minded in your focus. There's, there's a lot of different things that, that contribute to the ebb and flow that might synchronize at one point, creating a much bigger flow than, yeah. than previously experienced. So I like that. Um, that image. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. I think that's a great example. And for me, that is part of the reason I enjoy this. I use it daily or frequently and in different, you can kind of look at it from different perspectives, different activities, like you say, like life or specifically in skiing, but also on a different time frame, like that, more of a training plan, like approaching a race. But also within a race, you're going to have these moments where you feel better and feel worse. And like, you're like, oh, it's okay. It doesn't feel great right now. But I don't know what it's going to feel like in two minutes. Like I just have to hang on right here, do what I can and then maximize when I feel good. I do the same thing in workouts. I'll be like, all right, I'm going to think about the ebb and flow on this. Like we're doing hard bounding, like, all right, the, you know, the lactate will flow and it'll flood, but then it'll also release and you'll process and like finding that um, from a small scale up to a large scale. Yeah. Of, yeah. So yeah, that's just about that. That's quite interesting. Very thought provoking if nothing else. Yeah. Okay. Something to think about for sure. Yeah.
So Akio, uh, I appreciate you being with us today. Um, I think this interview, hopefully the American skiing public will take not only some very interesting philosophical perspectives from you, also some in enlightening um, information and observations about Craftsbury, but also um, there's more than one way to get to an end result. And you've taken in some ways, at least parts of your career, a non-traditional result, which I think has set you up really well for life as well as you're doing quite well. You're, I'm looking at the 2019 American Brookfire Champion. So I think there's a lot to be learned and uh, from this interview. And I hope it's as entertaining as, as well as informative for people and inspiring. So thank you very much for this. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Great sure. questions make a conversation easy to have uh, a fun and yeah, interesting intellectual conversation. Being our, ge uh, given our geographic locations, I'm thinking I probably will not see you this winter. I have enjoyed uh, some of the conversations we've had as we ski together in Yellowstone and other places and our contact. I just want you to know I enjoy that and I'll look forward to the next time, but I'm guessing it probably won't be this winter. Yeah, thank you. I enjoy them too. And yeah, I look forward to when we see each other on the trails again. Okay, super. Well, thanks. Okay.